The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, believers. It's good to be here this morning. This is our last message in 1 John, really. I think I said that before, but for real this time, all right? And I really hate to see it end. I've really enjoyed this study. It was a study that I put off for a while because the Greek in 1 John is so complicated. Um, But let me tell you, I just have so enjoyed this, and I've enjoyed really coming to understand John's concept of abiding in Christ. And I think the things that I have learned over this study have really helped me in my quest to live a holy life. I really believe it's affected me in a very practical way. You know, we've said over and over, 1 John is written for believers. The Gospel of John was written so people would come to faith. This was written to believers. As we saw in chapter 5, verse 13, he said he is writing to believers. He's talking to people who have come to faith in Christ, but he's trying to lead them into a deeper understanding and a further maturity in their life. There are several terms in this epistle that John used as synonyms. He talks about fellowship with God. He talks about abiding in Christ. He talks about knowing God, abiding in God, seeing God. These terms all describe the experience of Christians. They're all described our relationship with God in varying degrees of intimacy. You know, fellowship with God is a matter of greater or lesser intimacy. I mean, when we speak of being in fellowship or out of fellowship, I think we're kind of oversimplifying our relationship with God. See, our fellowship with God is rarely either perfect or non-existent. You agree with that? It's usually somewhere in between those extremes. And it may vary from day to day. And that's what John's saying. He wants you to learn to walk in abiding in fellowship with God day by day. See, all Christians possess eternal life. But not all experience that life to the fullness that God had intended it. John's subject concerns true and false versions of fellowship with God. It's not an invitation to introspective doubts concerning your salvation. He is not talking in this epistle about salvation or how to be saved. Now in verses 18-21 through of chapter 5, John brings this epistle to a close. These verses are an epilogue to the epistle. This is it. He's finishing it off. So let's back up a little. We've dealt with this verse before, but we'll pick with 18 and finish this chapter off. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know in this final section, three times he uses this word. At the beginning of verse 18, 19, 20, we know, we know, we know. John wants us to be certain about these important truths. And he is still countering the false teachers and their destructive claims of secret knowledge. Remember these pre-Gnostics, they had this idea, you have this secret knowledge, this insight knowledge. And John goes, no, we know. We believers, we know. Because we get it from God. Now the opening words we know remind us of the we statements found in the prologue in verses 1-4. through We have seen, we have heard, we have handled. Now he closes with, we know, we know, we know. 
kind of uh, bracketing this whole book. Now he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Now some translations here add, everyone born of God does not keep on sinning or does not go on sinning. Those are incorrect translations, people. As much as they make you feel better, they're incorrect translations. No other text can be cited where the Greek present tense, unaided by qualifying words, can carry this kind of significance. Our text here is correct. It's everyone who has been born of God does not sin, period. It's absolute. How does that make you feel? If you're born of God, you don't sin. That's what the text says. Now, I know people scratch their heads and say, well, wait a minute. I think I'm born of God, but I still sin. John is speaking here. We've been over this, so you know it, right? He's speaking of a specific sin. He's speaking of the sin of denying Christ. The sin of rejecting the Christ of the Bible. The Christ he is talking about. He's referring to the sin that leads to death committed by the secessionist that he is battling. The sin which the person who has been born of God cannot commit is the sin that the secessionists are committing with their false Christology. Believers cannot commit that sin. Then he says, but the one who was born of God keeps him. Now we talked about this. This could be translated, the one born of God keeps him, or the one born of God keeps himself. Referring to Christ, or referring to the believer. There's a lot of debate about which one is used here. There are many times in Scripture when believers are told to keep themselves, but I don't think this is one of them. I see this as talking about Christ keeping believers eternally safe. And that's a good way to end the epistle, to remind us that we are secure in Him. That this is an appropriate interpretation, I think, is supported by the fact that in the fourth gospel, Yeshua is portrayed as the one who keeps His disciples safe. And the last phrase in the verse, I think, lends to this, And the evil one doesn't touch him. Why? Because we're kept safe by the Son of God. The evil one can't touch believers. Christ is guarding us. Now the words evil one are from the Greek panaros. We talked about this last week. Panaros is a word that could be neuter or masculine in gender. It may represent the neuter, that which is evil, or the masculine, the evil one. But in almost every case in which this expression occurs, it's a reference to A personal, masculine, evil one, that is most likely the meaning here. John uses the term the evil one interchangeably with the devil. We went into that last week. Then he goes on and says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. We know that we are of God. Of God here in the Greek is ek theos. And the preposition ek indicates both source and possession. So we could say here, Christians are from God in the sense that they are fathered by Him and in the fact that they belong to Him. So we are fathered by God, we belong to God. And he says the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Now, John here affirms that the whole world is under the controlling influence of the evil one. However, believers do not belong to the world any longer. We are from God. This is because of the work of Christ. In Galatians 1.4, Paul writes, who gave Himself, speaking of Christ, for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and the Father. 
In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, Paul writes, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Christ has given us life, and so that in every sense we are from God. Now, and since we are from God, our lives ought to be God-centered. They ought to be God-focused. That's what should be the controlling, driving force of our life. Now, let's move into verse 20. And he says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Yeshua the Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And we know, this is the third certainty here, he says, we know that the Son of God has come. Now, and here is literally a mild adversative particle contrasting the blind indifference of the world in 19 with the new understanding of the believer. We know that the Son of God has come. The word come here is heiko, which is in the present tense. It means to have come and to be present. He's here. Now, this is referring to the incarnation of the Son of God. John put it this way in the Gospel. And the Word became flesh. And He dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's telling us here that the eternal Word, who He says in verse 1, was with God and was God, became flesh. The Word who created all things became a human being. This verse teaches us the staggering truth that Yeshua of Nazareth was Yahweh become man. The Word became flesh has been expressed by the theological term incarnation, which comes from two Latin words, in plus cargo, meaning enfleshment, or the act of assuming flesh. Yahweh chose to become united to true humanity. Deity with a human body was a major problem for the Gnostics, or pre-Gnostics, who he's writing against here, who asserted the evilness of matter. See, to them, all matter was evil. So, God couldn't have become matter. That would be evil. Like I said, people call them the, the, the group that John is combating here. They call them Gnostics or Docetics. They're probably pre-Gnostics because Gnosticism had not become full-blown yet, but they're the forerunners. Uh, whether you want to call them docetics or Gnostics, they were in embryonical form of this heretical doctrine. And this belief that they had, they had a special revelation from God that was superior to the believers in the early church, and their revelation was that Yeshua was not the Son of God. But the Christ Spirit came upon Him at His baptism, so He's just a normal man, Born like a normal man, just a normal man until his baptism. Then the Christ Spirit comes on him, and then right before he died, the Christ Spirit left him. So the man born in Bethlehem was not God's son. But the man Yeshua, who became the Christ, they taught that the Christ Spirit left him before he died. So Yeshua the Christ didn't die on the cross for our sins. And he wasn't risen again. But John comes in with an explosive statement that lays flat the whole heresy, strikes at the very root of it, and he says, we know the Son of God has come. He became a man. And he said, and he has given us understanding 
so that we may know Him that is true. Him that is true is God the Father, so Christ gave us an understanding so we can know God. Now the word translated understanding here is from the Greek word dianio. It is found only here in Johannian writings, but the context makes its meaning pretty clear. The understanding which the Son of God gives us is a knowledge of God the Father. In John 17, Yeshua addressed His Father as the only true God. He says, And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Yeshua the Christ, whom You have sent. See, if Yeshua... It's Yeshua, it's Yeshua, not the Gnostic false teachers who had provided the needed insight into deity. These Gnostics are saying, we have special insight. No, that insight comes from Christ. Yeshua has fully revealed the Father by means of His life, by His teaching, by His actions, by His death and resurrection. To see Christ is to see God. Look what He said in John 14.9. Yeshua said to Him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So here we have Yeshua's rebuking Philip. He says, you still don't know me, Philip? As highly as they thought of Yeshua, they did not yet grasp that in Yeshua, Yahweh was making Himself known. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. People, we have to grasp this. We have to understand this. Whenever you're reading the Gospels and you see the life of Christ, you see Christ doing something. When you see Christ, you see the Father. Okay? Paul put it this way in Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God. Speaking of Christ. The firstborn of all creation. Now, the word for image here is the Greek word icon. Like the English word icon. A cone means that which resembles an object, which represents it. The word image cannot be pressed here to mean a perfect representation, as is seen in, because the same word is used in 1 Corinthians 11, 7 to say that man is the image of God. Okay, now we're not a perfect representation, we're not a perfect image of God. So the word icon here, in and of itself, doesn't mean a perfect manifestation. But let me ask you a question. Is Yeshua a perfect manifestation of Yahweh? Yes, He is. But we learn that not from the word image in Colossians, but from other passages in the New Testament. And what the text in Colossians is teaching us is that Yeshua manifests the invisible Yahweh to us. As we look at other texts in the New Testament, we see that this is a perfect manifestation that Christ gives us. Luke put it this way. In that same hour, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and He said, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So Yeshua here claims a unique relationship with the Father that all others lack. Only He can reveal the Father to us. And He can only do that according to His sovereign will. Listen, if Yeshua doesn't reveal the Father to us, 
we won't know the Father. There's no other way. Okay? Look at John 5, 17 and 18. This chapter 5, by the way, is just an incredible chapter on the deity of Christ. But Yeshua answered them, My Father is working until now, and I'm working. In the beginning of this text, there's a man laying by the pool, and he's lame. Yeshua comes along, and he heals him. He says, hey, you want to be healed? How can I? You know, every time the water gets stirred up, I can't get in there because I'm crippled fast enough. So the Lord heals him. And of course, all the Jews are upset about this. They're like, hey, what's this guy doing? You know, I mean, how rude to heal a man and let him walk again. Well, the problem they had with him doing that, well, they had a lot of problems with him doing it. But one of the problems was, it was the Sabbath. Okay? So here's the argument. But Yeshua answered them, My Father is working until now, and I'm working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath by healing this man, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. And here's what happened here. Yeshua is justifying His Sabbath healing by reminding the Jews that they admitted that Yahweh worked on the Sabbath. They all knew that, right? The sun came up on the Sabbath. That was God. See, the Jews believed everything that happened. God was in, rightly to believe, God's in control. If it's happening, God's doing it, all right? The sun comes up on Sunday. The wind blows on Sunday. The rain falls. The grass grows. They knew Yahweh continued to do the work of judgment and the work of redemption on the Sabbath. They knew Yahweh was working on the Sabbath and this explains their violence or their reaction in verse 18 because Christ says, oh, well, my father's working and I'm doing just like him. He works on the Sabbath, so do I. And they're like, oh, no, you don't. The Sabbath privilege to them was particular to Yahweh and no one was equal to Yahweh. They said, you're making yourself equal with God. Yes, he was. They got that right. Okay? And claiming the right to work as the father worked, Yeshua was claiming to be Yahweh, the I Am. Now the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. He is saying that as the eternal God, he works all the time. And so he's claiming, to I, I'm just doing what my Father does with healing this. I'm following the pattern of Yahweh. And this shocked and angered the Jewish leaders. How dare you make yourself equal with God? And Yeshua goes on in this chapter to say some of the strongest affirmations of his deity in all of Scripture. He claimed to have the power to give life to whom He wishes, to judge everyone, to receive the same honor as the Father. Look what He says in verse 21. For as the Father... Like I said, people, you got someone who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ, take him to John 5. Okay? As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, they all agree with that, so also the Son gives life to whoever He will. What? You can give life to people? For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The Son judges also. Now watch, this is the strongest one here. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. What was this saying to the Jews who honored God or thought they did? But He's saying, if you don't honor the Son... If you don't honor me, Yeshua is saying, you don't honor the Father. See, from the time that Christ showed up and started His ministry, Judaism was dead unless they accepted Christ. Had to accept Him. 
The Father has guaranteed that the Son will receive equal honor with Himself by committing the role of judging entirely to Him. Therefore, failure honor the Son reflects failure honor the Father. How can Yeshua say this in light of, for example, Isaiah 42.8? I am Yahweh. That's My name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So Yahweh won't share His honor with another, but He says He shares it with the Son. So for Him to share His honor with the Son must mean that the Son and the Father are one in essence. That's why we teach a trinity. We have two people here that are one in essence, and then you add the Spirit and you have a trinity. Alright? And people want to argue, I got it. Got it one last week again. You talk about a trinity. It's not even in the Bible. Wow, that's a strong argument. You know, I just want to throw my hands up and say, you're right, I give up. Okay, yes, the word trinity is not in there. The doctrine is all through there. Okay, and the word doesn't have to be there. The word's not there. It's not there. No, you have a son who is God. You have a father who is God. And you have a spirit's God. I think that's three. That's a trinity. But they're one in essence. They're one in purpose. But they're three persons. What man, what created being could say that we should honor him just like we honor the Father? Anybody said that, you'd be like, wow, they're off the rocker, right? But clearly, Yeshua is claiming to be Yahweh. Now, when you read a liberal theologian that says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, like, read your Bible, okay? Just tell them that, because anyone who says that doesn't know their Bible, they just don't know it the Tanakh, or the New Testament. Because over and over, through the Tanakh and the New Testament, Yeshua claimed to be Yahweh. He does it all through this text. He insists that He is to be worshipped in the same way Yahweh is. He's to be honored, praised, adored, respected, trusted, obeyed, in the same way as God the Father. So when the person says Yeshua is not God of very God, He's not honoring the Son. But He's dishonoring the Father also. That's a serious thing. So when a man says, well, God is God, but Yeshua, He is only the Son. They want to somehow diminish it. Denying Him the honor of the Father. He's not only not honoring Christ, He's dishonoring the Father. You can't have one without the other. Earlier in 1 John, he writes this, Who is a liar? But he who denies that Yeshua is the Christ. This is Antichrist. Is this strong language? People freak out in our day using language like this. He's a liar, he says. Okay? He's Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He's talking to people who are Jewish. Remember that. you got Jews. If you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. No one who denies the Son has the Father. John and the Apostolic Fellowship recognized Yeshua as the Son of God. Because He had opened their eyes. See, without this supernatural gift of understanding, we can't know God. Christ has to open people's eyes to who the Father is. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14. Very important verse. Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to Him. You ever shared the Gospel with someone and they just laughed at you? They're folly to them. Watch what it says. He is not able to understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. 
Now notice carefully what this verse says. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. That would include the Word of God. Right? So if you're sharing the Word of God with the natural person, they're like, ah, oh, I don't, that's nonsense. They're not able to understand it, he says. So the question here is, who is the natural man? Well, the word natural comes from the Greek word sukakos. And Jude uses this word and helps us understand what it means. So Jude 1.19 says, in, it is these who cause division, worldly people, that's our word sukakos, that's the same word as natural person that Paul uses. And then Jude describes these people as devoid of the Spirit. So the people who are sukakos, they don't have the Spirit of God. So the natural man is a man without the Spirit. So how does a man get the Spirit of God? It happens by a sovereign act of God in regeneration. Apart from God's sovereign intervention, man cannot accept the things of God. I've used this illustration before. It's like this room is filled with radio waves. None of you can pick them up unless you've got a receiver on you, right? Same thing, unless you have the receiver of the Holy Spirit, you don't pick up anything, the Spirit of God. And that's why when you talk to natural people, they're just like, they don't care about that. But what's cool is when you see a natural person go to a spiritual person. The light comes on, and all of a sudden, wow, that's a cool thing. But this divine gift of understanding brings us into a personal relationship with the only true God so that we can come to know Him. All right, back to our text. He says, so we may know Him who is true. That's the Father. Now, in the New Testament, there are two words in the original language, two adjectives that mean true. One that means true as over against that which is false, and one that means true in the sense of genuine. One is aletheis, and one is aletheinos. So you can see how similar they are. This means true in the sense of genuine. That's the one that is used here three times in this paragraph. Genuine. So that we may know Him who is genuine. Now Yeshua used this adjective back in John 6 when He says, Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but My Father gives you the true bread. Okay? The true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now what's He talking about here? Well, the crowd had said He gave them bread of heaven to eat and and responded, Yeshua responded, don't interpret the He as Moses, because that's what they were talking about. Moses gave us the bread. He says, but interpret it as the Father, and don't read give, but gives. And suddenly the Scripture citation by the crowd has been turned to a witness to Yeshua. He's pointing to himself. They're saying, oh, Moses did it. He goes, no, it's me. I'm the bread. And this radical revised interpretation of Scripture is characteristic of the conflict between Judaism and Christianity in the first century. See, both appealed to the Scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament. But radically different interpretations arose from the same passage. Why? Because some people are enlightened by the Spirit and they can see the true meaning of something. There's a play on manna here which came from heaven, as did Yeshua. Yeshua is the true man. He's the true bread from God. So he's using this word true in that same sense as genuine. He says, and we are in Him who is true. Alright, we're in who, Him who is true. That's God the Father. And in His Son, Yeshua the Christ. Now, this phrase here, we are in Him, recalls the same expression 
he used earlier in John, 1 John 2, 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. So John immediately links we are in him with verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. So we're in Him and we are to abide in Him. He links these together. Now the phrase abides in Him, in John's description of the experience, he's talking about living as a disciple. That's what it means to abide. To live the Christian life. To live it out. It means exactly the same thing as knowing Him in verse 4, which is the same as saying fellowship with Him in verse 6. They're all one and the same experience. Having fellowship with Him, knowing Him, abiding in Him, they're all the same. They're all synonyms for discipleship. For having a close, intimate relationship with God. Now, John's expression in him here, an ato, is not equivalent to Paul's concept of being in Christ and Christo. And that's important to understand here, people. Because we said, oh, in him. He's not using it like Paul does. Okay? Paul used this phrase to describe every believer. You're in Christ. To be in Christ is to have justification, it's to be saved. The unsaved are not in Christ. However, John used in him, as Yeshua did in the upper room discourse, to describe not all believers, but the group of believers who are living in fellowship with God. They are believers, but they're walking in fellowship. He's not saying that this is how we know we're saved. This is how we know we're in fellowship. So to be in him is not only to abide in him who is true, again, John's description of God, but it's also to be in His Son, Yeshua the Christ. Now the full title here, His Son, Yeshua the Christ, only appears here and in the prologue. We see it in one three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. That's what this epistle is about, having fellowship. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Yeshua the Christ. Then He repeats it. He says it in the prologue. He repeats it in the epilogue. His Son, Yeshua the Christ. And this provides bookends to this epistle. It's an inclusio. Now, do you remember what inclusio is? We talked about that before. In literature, an inclusio is a literary device based on a concentric principle, also known as bracketing or an envelope, which consists of you're creating a frame around the subject. So he begins this with telling us, Yeshua is the Son. The Son, Yeshua, He's the Christ. And he ends it with the same thing. He's bracketing the book with this idea. He is the true God in eternal life. Now, here's the question. Who is the true God in eternal life? Who's he talking about here? What? He's talking about both? No, you're going to take the easy road, huh? Okay, that is the right answer, i got to say, but that's, I don't like the way you're getting there. <laughs> All right. Conservative scholars are divided over whether the phrase He is the true God refers to the Father or to Yeshua. And it's difficult to know whether He refers to God or He's talking about the Son. Now in the first case, the author would be emphasizing that the Father of our Lord Yeshua is the true God and the source of eternal life. No problem with that. Okay, biblically that's fine, so we can accept that. In the second case, the author would be saying that Yeshua Himself is the true God and eternal life. I believe the true God here is referring to the Son. Alright? And let me give you a couple of reasons why. Um, supporting the interpretation that He is the true God refers to Yeshua 
is the fact that Yeshua the Christ is the closest antecedent for He in the context. The immediate preceding words are Yeshua the Christ, so proximity alone would suggest that as the preferred antecedent, but here's the problem. On other occasions, Yeshua the Christ is the closer antecedent, but some argue that the pronoun still refers to God. So grammar, eh, that's a good argument, but not strong. Although many of the church fathers, as well as the reformers, argue that the phrase refers to the closest antecedent that was Yeshua. And I agree with them. I think that's, maybe it's not the strongest argument, but it's good. it is a good argument. Another reason is that Yeshua is spoken of as eternal life in chapter 1 of this epistle. So again, let's go back to the prologue. The eternal life which was with the Father. That's who He's declaring to them. That eternal life. And here again, He says, He is the true God and eternal life. And here's the key. The Father is never described as eternal life. This reference to eternal life in 520 is the final inclusio. Again, He's bracketing this book. He's talking about Christ. This book is about Christ and fellowship with Him. I started that way. I'm going to end that way. Another reason why I see true God is referring to Yeshua is that to say that speaking of God the Father, I don't think makes a lot of sense. Because to say that the true God is the true God, it's kind of stating the obvious. Right? But if this is saying that Yeshua is the true God, it comes as an amazing natural conclusion to the whole epistle. That this Christ Yeshua is the very Son of God incarnate who has been sent in human flesh to be our Savior. God has revealed Himself in human flesh in the incarnation of Yeshua. So He's just closing with a powerful argument. This is the true God. That's who Yeshua is. Now, Sennachenberg writes this, For here, the full identity of Jesus with God is recognized without reserve. That's true. He's calling Him the true God. Note the article with Theos, God. This seems to occur intentionally at the end of the letter, at the climax of the triumph expression of faith. It is hardly an accident that it is precisely at the beginning, 1-1 and 1-18, and at the end, 20-28, of the Gospel of John that the light of Jesus' divinity shines forth most fully. In other words, he did this in the Gospel, he's doing it again in the Epistle. The climactic Christology confession, Christological confession becomes visible here in all its clarity. And Brown also understands the statement, He is the true God in eternal life to refer to Yeshua the Christ. And so constitutes a very strong affirmation of His divinity. I think this is one of the strongest direct statements of the deity of Christ in the New Testament. He's saying of Christ, He's the true God. Now in light of John's polemic against the false teachers who denied Yeshua's deity it would seem a very fitting end of the book to refer to Yeshua as the true God. Just in case you guys missed it, He's the true God. Alright? Do you remember what Thomas said to Yeshua after the resurrection? What did he call Him? That's right. Very good class. Thomas answered Him, My Lord and my God. And what did Yeshua say? <laughs> no, that's what He didn't say. Okay? But see, that is what, remember when uh, John bowed down to the angel, the angel said, hey, hey, don't worship me, right? Don't worship me. Well, Yeshua didn't say that. Here's what Yeshua said. Yeshua said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Yeshua didn't correct him. Why? Because he was right in calling him God. 
Now, if he's not God, he should have said, wait a minute, Tom, you got this all wrong, okay? No, no, don't, don't make that, no. One more verse. One of my favorites, John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am. You will die in your sins. Now, what Yeshua says here is unless you believe that I am. The translators added he. He is not in the text. Alright? So what is Yeshua claiming here? He's claiming to be the I am. Ego eimi. I am. Unless you believe that I am. And by doing so, He is asserting equality with God Himself who was revealed as the I am that I am. Remember, Moses says, Hey, Lord, who should I say sent me? He said, Ehia, Asher Ehia. I am who I am. And so here Yeshua is saying, unless you believe that I am, you die in your sins. Wow, that's a strong statement, people. That's a really strong statement. But Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now they're scratching their heads and say, wait a minute, you're not older than Abraham. How's this work out? Because I am, I'm the eternal God. And then Yeshua says, I and the Father are one. Okay, minds are blowing, all right? The Jews are just can't handle this stuff. They had asked Yeshua for a plain statement of his Messiahship. He gives them far more than they could handle. A claim that he and the Father were one. The Jews understood this as a claim to deity, and they said, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Yeshua is eternal God. He's a part of the Trinity. He always existed. He's co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And let me just add here that to abide in Christ is to abide in God. All right, you understand there's no distinction there? They're all God. You cannot have one without the other. God is known to us only through the Son, though the Son reveals the Father. Christ is the visible member of the Trinity. 1 John 2.23 says this, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Is that strong enough language? Huh? I think it's strong enough. But you got John Hagee saying, the Jews don't need the Gospel. They have their own way to get to the Father. No, there is no other way to the Father except through the Son. And John is repeating an idea here that Yeshua expressed often as recorded in the Gospel of John. Yeshua said this, and Yeshua cried out and said, whoever believes in Me believes not in Me, but Him who sent Me. And whoever sees Me, sees Him who sent Me. How many times do they have to say this till we start catching on? Alright? Are we going to catch on? Whoever sees Me, sees Him who sent Me. There's no separating the Father and the Son. They are one in essence. And John closes, little children, keep yourself from idols. Now, when you think of an idol... Or idol worship. What do you think of? Maybe think of somebody in a mud hut with a little carved thing on the table and they're bowing down to it. Or maybe you think of a pagan temple. You know, it's very elaborate and ornate with a lot of people burning incense and bowing down. Idolatry is much broader than that. Idolatry is simply thinking something about God that is untrue. It's postulating anything about God that is not right. In its fullest stage, it's creating a God. In its secondary stage, it's making God into something that He isn't. 
And maybe in its third level, even Christians are guilty of this, it's thinking thoughts about God that are untrue of Him. He's revealed Himself. And we are to be thinking those thoughts that He's revealed in Scripture. Psalm 50, 21 says, These things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was just like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. God says, you thought I was like you. And that's precisely what men have done for the most part. They have made God into their own likeness or imaginations. They have created a God that they can control, they can handle, one that does what they want Him to do. But see, the Bible doesn't teach that God's a cosmic genie. You know, rub your lamp and get three wishes. No! God is the sovereign God who you bow down to. He's not your servant. You're His servant. The essence of idolatry is entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of God. And it can come in so many forms. You know, when you first read this, verse 21 seems to be out of context. But in verse 20, John has just mentioned that Yeshua is the true God. This undoubtedly brought to his mind the false god of the heretics. Because they said Yeshua, no, he, he wasn't the God. He just, the Spirit of God came upon him, so he's saying, He's the true God. Keep yourself from idols. Okay? Keep yourself from idols. They said the Christ came upon Yeshua at his baptism, left at the crucifixion. They didn't believe he was the eternal God in human flesh. And I think that John is telling his readers that if they have a substandard view and understanding of Yeshua, that's idolatry. Anything that's short of Yeshua the Christ revealed as God is idolatry. Now, S. Smalley and R. Brown both saw the reference to idols here as a slightly veiled reference to the secession of the opponents with their false Christology. Abandoning the author's position, joining the secessionists, and accepting their theology would be amount to going after idols, going after other gods. And since John has spent almost the entire letter discussing in one form or another the opponents with their false teaching and how it was troubling the Christian community, He's, he's writing here, don't be surprised by this false theology. Keep yourself from it. Guard yourself from it. And there's significant background in the Qumran literature about this idea of you know, idolatry is just believing the wrong thing. It's going in the wrong direction. It says, those who reject the precepts and set up idols in their hearts and walk in the stubbornness of their hearts, they shall have no share in the house of law. This is from Qumran. Another one from Qumran. Cursed be the man who enters this covenant while walking among the idols of his heart, who sets up before him his stumbling block of sin so that he may backslide. So, I think that when John gives his readers a final warning to avoid idolatry, he's warning them once more to avoid the secessionist opponents with their heretical and dangerous false teaching as he did in the epistle in 2.15, 2.27, This is also consistent with the author's admonition in 2 John 10, not to greet the opponents nor offer them any hospitality. We'll get to that when we get to 2 John. So having spelled out in the letter the various false confessions, John caps off the epistle with the highest statement. He says, He is the true God and eternal life. Keep yourself from idols. Understand that is important that you understand that doctrine. And to hold any other view of Christ is to be going into idolatry. Yeshua is the true God. But if Yeshua mediates true knowledge of God, 
and is so intimately related to God that He Himself can be called a true God, then any doctrine, any worship that dilutes those affirmations is tantamount to idolatry. The warning, little children, keep yourself from idols, points to the danger of worshiping any God other than the one revealed through Yeshua the Christ. And people, listen, this happens so much today. People have ideas that they believe. They don't read their Bible. Okay, they hear something in church, they hear something on TV, and they believe it. They don't know the Word of God. That's why I push you so much. It's so important that you read your Bible. Just read it. Cover to cover, once a year, read that book, and then you'll have an understanding of it. Then when you hear something, you go, that doesn't sound right. Because people have crazy ideas. And I always like to say, where does it say that in the Bible? And then just watch the stare. It's like, ah, it's in there somewhere. Could you show me? Show me. Give me a reference. And not to be a smart aleck, but come on. You know, that, if you're saying that's in there, show me where it is. Well, I heard so-and-so say it was in there. That doesn't make it in there. Okay, and you ought to know where it is. And then I like to ask them, have you read the whole Bible? I'll tell you, 90% of the people are going to tell me no. I'm like, and how can we talk about it if you haven't even read it? You know, it's kind of foolish. You want to talk about, discuss a book that I haven't even read. How do you know what's in there, what's not in there? You know, I always tell them the part that I'm telling them is true is in the part they haven't read yet. That's why they're confused, all right? Well, the idols here are not pagan deities or images of stone and wood. An idol is a false picture of God that causes us to stumble, to fall away from a relationship. I mean, again, I think there's so much idolatry going on in the church today because we have these false views of God, views that we like. I like this God. He does whatever I tell him to do. Okay? We, we can boss him around. But the God of the Bible, nah, I'm not so crazy about that. Well, listen. <laughs> he is who he is, as best of you know it so you understand, and can worship the true God and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, I thank you for the clarity throughout the scriptures of who Yeshua is. Oh, Father, I pray you'd give us eyes to see. May we be diligent, Lord, in looking at your word and studying your word that we would really know what it says. And we'd be able to worship you in the purest form, Lord. Thank you for your grace to us, your patience with us, Lord. We love you. Amen. Okay, questions. Okay, last week, nothing but questions. Today, we're, not, we're just going to be quiet, right? Yeah, Mike. Qumran is the, the discovery that they made in Qumran in the caves. You know, they found all these manuscripts that really helped us in understanding the Bible because we, you know, we got more understanding from their, their writings at Qumran. Qumran was a group that they kind of moved away from the Jews and they viewed themselves as holier than though, but they had a lot of writings in the caves, and the, the writings we found at Qumran were very helpful in understanding Scripture. The Dead Sea Scrolls. And a lot of the Bibles, yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls, a lot of the Bibles, uh, the newer Bibles will rely on those to help give us understanding as to what... The culture that they do. Yeah, the culture, they what they, they believe. They're not inspired, though, right? No, they're not inspired, although, you know, they're not part of the Word of God, but they give us understanding. This is what that culture was believing and thinking... <coughs> about the Word of God, and that helps us.
they're the ones who wrote the Word of God. So. They're not inspired. They didn't change anything. Right. No, I mean, a lot of there is commentary in there. There's rules to living. They have a lot of different stuff that they found, but it just gives us insight into how they viewed the scripture. And this is Second Temple. Okay, I learned slightly after, so we understand what their thought was on the Word of God. Just curious, what you talked about earlier about Hayden. Where does he get his justification? Uh, boy, that's a, I can't, I don't know, Hagee calls himself a friend of the Jews, I can't think of a bigger enemy. To say to somebody, you don't need the gospel, is not a friend. That's not a friend at all. But he considers himself a friend of Israel. But he says they have a separate relationship with God and they don't need the gospel. And I'm like, that violates so much of scripture. All of everything we looked at today. Well, you should say, if you don't have me, you don't have the Father. Hagee's saying, no, he was wrong. You can have the Father. And it's dangerous, but listen. The man speaks to 100,000 people a week through his TV. And and people love him and they believe him. And it's like, when I hear people sitting there saying, amen, amen, I'm like, that's violating Scripture. Again, if Christians don't know their Bibles, then they're just going to go along with anything. So often, um, just like the last verse, he um, he is the true God. We read that and check that off. We got that. We read that verse. It doesn't penetrate this thick skull anyway. <laughs> and we don't. You know, we're programmed somewhat to read the next chapter and finish that day's reading and, and don't take the time to dig deep too deep. Well, I, I keep saying it starts with reading. Read it, read it, read it, and then start digging into it and find out. Okay, but don't stop reading it because it's so important you keep reading and reading because you're going to be reading in the Tanakh and you, Isaiah's going to say something you're like, Paul said that. You know, and, and you go and look it up, and, and you start getting this stuff. You know, and it's it's just it's encouraging, it's exciting. But you've got to know the book. And I don't understand. You know, most Christians, I would say all Christians would say they believe in the inspiration of Scripture. They believe this is the very Word of God that God spoken to them, and they don't touch it all week. Now, is that the height of hypocrisy? If you believe this book comes from God, and you want to have a relationship with Him. Spend some time in it. Spend a lot of time in it. Shut off the TV. Shut off whatever it is that's consuming your time because there's nothing more important than you can do than have a relationship with God. And if you want to have joy in your life, it comes from a relationship with God. But we try to find it in everything other than God. And that's why Christians are so miserable sometimes. Okay, I got a note from Bob Cruikshank. Uh, Bob always uh, gives us insight here. He says, The Qumran literature shows us how certain words, concepts, and ideas were understood in the context of that time. That was one of the strengths of these writings. Okay, Thank you, Bob. What would you say to like pastors that claim they want to decouple 
the Old Testament and the New Testament. Wow, that's a dangerous. That's a dangerous thing. Wasn't Stanley? Stanley's the one who's pushing that, right? Yeah, they want to. They want to decouple what they call the Old Testament. I call it the Tanakh because I don't like the term Old Testament because if something's old, you're like, I don't need it anymore. You know, I have an old computer. I don't use it. I use my new computer. Okay, so that's why I just don't like that. I know I'm weird about stuff like that. Okay, but I don't like the term. The Tanakh is, but to uncouple that, then you lose. Everything in the New Testament, okay? I mean, when Matthew starts out, he talks about the genealogy of Yeshua the Christ. You're like, what genealogy? Who's Yeshua? Where do you get this? Who are these people that they're talking about? That you just took the first three quarters of the book and you removed it. And Paul quotes scripture and scripture. You're like, where's he quoting this from? What's he mean by this? And then we get so confused, you know, because we're reading the New Testament. It says Christ is going to come on a cloud. And we're like, cool, and we got a white, puffy cloud, and Yeshua's standing on it, which I don't know how a man would stand, you'd go right through it, it's vapor, okay? But he's standing on it, and he's surfing, and he's coming in. Because you don't know Isaiah 19.1 that says the Lord is coming to Egypt on a swift cloud. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. God wasn't, nobody saw him on a cloud. Coming on a cloud is Tanakh language for judgment. So you've got to have the Bible together. When you get to the book of Revelation, and you're going to decouple, it is the most quoted book. It quotes more from the Tanakh than any other book in the Bible. And that's why people don't understand it. They, they have automatically decoupled. They, we just have this idea that if it's in there, it's not good. People, all the people who wrote the New Testament were steeped in the First Testament. In the Tanakh. They knew it. And they wrote from that. Man, I, I just... Oh, sorry, I can't, I can't think of a more dangerous thing than to take this Bible and to rip the, the first three-fourths of it out and throw it away and say, okay, we don't need all that. We need to understand it. We're not under the law today, but the New Testament teaches that. But like again, the concepts, the pictures, the, so much of the language comes from there. That was their Bible. The people who wrote the Bible, the Tanakh, that was their Bible. And they wrote an, an understanding there. That's why if you don't understand that, you're going to get mixed up when you come to the New Testament because you just can't start at the end and think you know what it's saying. So yeah, I've, I've read some of his stuff on that and I think this is just horrible. This is just, you know, why? Because Christians are so lazy they can't read that much? You know, it makes it easier to read the Bible, right? We just got a little bit. They probably still don't read the New Testament. Yeah. All right? No, read the whole thing. And you'll see how connected it is. Okay? It's very connected. But you'll see that as you spend time in it. All right? It's one book. One picture. One story of redemption from beginning to end. Okay? Man gets kicked out of the garden in Genesis, Revelation. Man is back in the garden with the tree of life. Okay? It's one story, people. You can't separate. Anybody else? Christ could walk on water. He could stand on a cloud. <laughs> <laughs> he could do that. All right, Tanya writes, what is it that Charles Stanley, It's I don't think it's Charles, I think it's just Andy. Oh, son. Andy Stanley that wants to decouple the Old Testament in the New. Wow. What is it that Charles Stanley or Andrew Stanley, that, well, I don't know, I, I don't know why they want to decouple it. I'm not sure what their purpose is. I've read it. 
Dan Harden writes, Hagee misapplies Old Testament prophecies. Well, absolutely. You know, absolutely. You know, too, and too many of these things, you know, again, it's, you got, it's one, and you've got to take it together, and you understand it together, and you say, well, this prophecy said this. You know, okay? You know, out of Egypt I've called my son. What's that talking about? God brought Israel out of Egypt, right? What does Christ say? That, that's referring to him. Oh, we would have never got that from the Old Testament, right? From the Tanakh. We would have never got that. But the New interprets it. And, and out of Egypt I've called my son is a reference to Christ. The real Israel. The true Israel. So if it's there, it's definitely important. Yeah, that's right. If it's in there, it's important. And we just got to understand it by spending time in it. Okay, so listen. I don't know how to say this any better, but read your Bible. Okay? No, I mean, really. You know, and, and Christians, really, just think about time for a minute. And if you have a problem, if you bring me your schedule, I'll help you find some time. Okay? We'll cross out a lot of junk you're doing you don't need to do. Facebook, forget about Facebook. Go and read the Bible, okay? Forget about a lot of these other things and spend some time in the Word of God. I mean, I think all Christians want to know God in a more intimate way. The only way you're going to do that is to spend time with Him. Okay? Through the Word of God and through prayer. Alright, come on up here, Ben. Or Jeremy and Jeff and Kathy and Zoe. And we're going to close with a song that we sing quite a bit around here. Heal Our Land. And again, <laughs> and again, here is my prayer, people, okay? Father, we pray that all the willful workers of wickedness be removed from positions of power, prominence, and prestige. We had... This answered partly last week, okay? Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Open the eyes of those being deceived and place people who stand for justice and righteousness in the high places of government and influence. That's our prayer. And we're asking God to heal our land, but like this song says, if my people will humble themselves, that's our problem. We have to humble ourselves. We got to seek his face. We got to pray for his will to be done Amen. in our nation. And we've got to stop this murder of the unborn. And I think we're in a position where it could actually happen, people. But we need to cry out to God. God, is it God's will that people murder each other? Not his moral will. Okay? No, murder is a sin. And yet it goes on and on and on. And we need to put a stop to it. And now we're in a place where it possibly could happen. So let's just pray that God would heal our land. But let's get to the point where we're humbling ourselves before Him, that we allow Him to use us in whatever way possible to do this, to talk to somebody who's about to get an abortion and tell them, this is life, this is a human being. You know, we need to be involved in the process. 